Welcome back to episode 6 of The Conspiracy Skeptic, a roughly 12-part review of the great conspiracies of today and the not-too-distant past. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. You can, of course, find this podcast by name on iTunes or visit the website at www.yrad.com forward slash cs, yrad.com forward slash cs. I sure have been getting a lot of positive feedback, and I really thank you for it. As I've said before, 12 is not a hard and fast number, and good feedback in email and iTunes makes me think, hey, you know, maybe I can milk this for years to come. But, like I say, I think I'll get to a point in the not-too-distant future when I'm sort of really stretching for topics. Sugar, white death, or 60 calories that makes your coffee taste better. I, for one, really hate getting into a podcast thinking it's going to be humming along until I'm age 60, and then find out the hosts have decided they're played out after 24 episodes. I really, really miss the Evolution 101 podcast, uh, which just kind of seemed to peter out without much warning. I just don't want to do that, so happiness through lowered expectations is my motto. Anyway, enough prattle. On with today's topic. Banking conspiracies, in which our intrepid conspiracy skeptic argues, in the face of the subprime crisis and the slide of the American dollar, that central banking and so-called fiat currency is actually a good idea. The Federal Reserve, a.k.a. the Fed, has been something of a target recently with the rise of Republican candidate Ron Paul. I'm not sure why Ron Paul is the candidate of choice among the 9-11 truthers and fellow travelers, especially the Alex Jones types. Ron Paul seems to have been a publisher of a survivalist newsletter back in the 80s with a lot of racist and conspiracy-minded articles. Now, I gather Ron Paul didn't pen any of these articles, but then they did appear under his name, and he was the editor. Whether they truly reflect his views is immaterial. The people building bunkers in Montana think they have a friend in Ron Paul. A user named No Twist on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe uh, message board I think nailed it in a recent post. Let, let, let me quote. Quote, I have some family members who are supporting Ron Paul through a circuitous route of... New Age whatnot maps onto conspiracy theories, maps onto Alex Jones, maps onto Ron Paul. Close quote. Anyway, Ron Paul's in favor of eliminating the Fed. Alex Jones believes the Fed is one arm of the one world government conspiracy. So, there you go. Ron Paul is the political wing of Alex Jones and the army of light fighting the one world government. So, I guess maybe people think of Ron Paul as the Jerry Adams to the uh, IRA. There have been a couple of videos floating around the blogosphere these days. Uh, one is called Money is Debt, which seems to be a flash animation explaining why, I guess, money is debt. The other is called Money Banking and the Federal Reserve, which seems to be from the Clinton era, but has been enjoying new popularity because it has a few scenes with Ron Paul. Oddly, while both recommend eliminating the Fed, Money Banking and the Federal Reserve advocates going back to the gold standard, while Money as Debt argues against this. So, geez, who to believe? I was going to review both movies within one podcast, but I found the topic growing amazingly huge, and instead of waiting until I finish and edit 14 pages on Money as Debt and then 14 pages on Money Banking and the Federal Reserve, I'll just split the podcast into two. So, in part one, let's tackle Money as Debt, which was done in 2006. 
After some scare quotes, money is debt tells us not many people really understand where money comes from. That's probably true. I don't think most of us know much about where money comes from other than what Jimmy Stewart explained in It's a Wonderful Life. Here, let me, let me quote. No, 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 you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The money's not here. Your money's in Joe's house, right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Macklin's house, and a hundred others. Why, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now what are you going to do, foreclose on them? And end scene. Jimmy Stewart's model wasn't 100% accurate, as was my impression, but we'll get into that soon enough. Anyway, Money is Debt gets right into what it views is the problem with money today. Private banks, not necessarily the elected government, create money, and they create it by getting people to go into debt. True? Uh, true. But is that a bad thing? Debt sure sounds like a scary word. No one likes being in debt. Student loans sure suck, but could you have got that university education and that boss stereo system if you didn't get that student loan? Can you afford to buy your first home with cash? What about a new car? Ever use a credit card? The money has to come from somewhere. As Jimmy Stewart led us to believe, the banks take the money Joe has deposited and then lend his money to Mrs. Macklin for a new greenhouse for her farm. Money is Debt points out that's not 100% accurate. Yarns ago, in the days of old, when Baltar was played by a Canadian, Pyramid was the colony's favorite card game and not a stadium sport. And Cylon said, by your command. Bankers noticed depositors rarely withdrew all the money they deposited. They would only withdraw a fraction of it at any one time. So bankers could loan out more money than they actually had, as long as everyone didn't simultaneously try to withdraw their money at the same time, like they did in A Wonderful Life, then everything was copacetic. Born was the fractional reserve system. This continues to this day. This lending out, or even selling out more than you actually have, is common in other business models as well. Airlines, for example, sell more tickets than they have seats on a plane, knowing a certain percentage of people don't make their flights. I don't know why. Uh, parking lots sell more monthly passes than there are actual spots, knowing not everyone uses a spot at the same time. So, for every dollar in deposits, banks get to loan about $9. This is why banks actually compete for your deposits, you know, pay you more interest for longer-term deposits, and pay less interest for shorter-term deposits, and maybe give you toasters. I, I don't know. They used to. More of your money they have, more they're sure they'll have it in the long term, more they compete to get it, and more interest they'll offer you for your money. And private banks get to just conjure up money, you ask? And you think, if anyone should get to conjure up new money, shouldn't that be the job of the elected government? You further think, isn't it kind of scary that non-elected corporations get to invent money? What's that, Lassie? Timmy fell down the well? Out by Old Man Johnson's farm? Well, I'm kind of hoping you're thinking that right now, because then I get to sort of answer. Well, I guess the fans of Money is Debt think this is a bad thing. But let's take a step back from the flick's lurid and frequent images of fat cat bankers and honest, hard-working people being crushed by debt. It seems to me there is a real demand for credit. 
The banks aren't forcing you to take a loan. You take loans based on your own needs. You need that great stereo, um, I mean, uh, BA in psychology. You need a house. You need a car to get to your job. Banks have those funds to lend you because they can create those funds. They're not reliant on only lending out that which has been deposited. To wit, without a fractional reserve system, the obvious real-world demand for credit would outstrip supply. If 10 people are competing for the same limited loan money, banks would be forced to A, only lend to their very, very best clients, which, um, given the number of free envelopes I steal from an ATM, it ain't me, and B, lend out an extremely high interest rate. If 10 people are competing for the same limited loan money, the bank will charge what the market will bear. Odds are you, and me again, would never get a loan under this system, or we'd pay dearly for it. Given that situation, what would the voting public do? Well, they would turn to the government and demand the government provide the loans the banks were incapable of providing. The politicians would be more than happy to ride that demand to elected office. So let's compare two short one-act plays. The first one is called The Man Who Wants to Open a Frogurt Stand on Mars Applies for a Loan from the Government Bank of Happy Fun Time Goodness. But before we begin, I should note I considered playing both roles in this play, but um, my Jimmy Stewart impression has convinced me I should probably outsource the roles. And this podcast does operate on a limited budget. Taking a cue from The Simpsons, I've outsourced the acting roles to Korea. And because I have a more limited budget than The Simpsons, I will, uh, unfortunately, be employing Asian child labor. If you have moral qualms, uh, turn off your iPod now. Hello, I would like to start a business. I would like to open a forgot stand on Mars. I need $45 million. That doesn't sound like the best idea. I think I will have to turn you down for a loan. Well, if you turn me down, I won't vote for you. Oh, now that you put it up that way, here's the money. End scene. Okay, the next play is called Man Who Wants to Open a Frogurt Stand on Mars Applies for a Loan from Chase Manhattan. Hello, I would like to start a business. I would like to open a frogurt stand on Mars. I need $45 million. That doesn't sound like the best idea. I think I will have to turn you down for a loan. There, um, is there any way I can make you change your mind? Sure, come up with a better business idea. One with better idea for making profits. End scene. You can see the problem here. If we put money creation through loans directly in the government hands, government will be more than happy to issue loans for any damn fool idea. Governments already buy votes by handing out tax dollars for all kinds of damn fool ideas. If they were given public approval to address the demand for loans, well, to quote Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes, it's a madhouse, a madhouse. 
So if we let for-profit banks create the money to create the loans, they should ideally only lend out money for good ideas. If they make bad loans, they go out of business. Being a 60-year-old loan manager out of work sure doesn't sound like the best kind of life. You're probably going to want to make good loans. I, I know you're saying subprime, irrational exuberance, all that. Well, human systems are fallible. Stock markets go bust too. Should we eliminate the stock market? So, at the end of the day, if we put this kind of money creation in the hands of, ultimately, private banks, private banks have to compete for your deposits. Think about it. If you can go to the government for an easy loan, what desire does a bank have to hold your money and pay you interest? Banks will, as in the days of yore, go back to charging you for the safekeeping of your money. But wait, there's a little more to money creation. Even with the fractional reserve system, there's still a demand for even more loans. The money you and I deposit still isn't enough even multiplied tenfold to meet the demand of borrowers. So where does a bank get its hands on more money? Well, the bank borrows it from the Fed and even other banks. That prime rate you hear so much about is part of this borrowing. The federal discount rate, I, I think, is the actual name of the interest rate the banks borrow from the Fed. So, much like loans on fractional deposits, banks borrow money from the Fed, deposit it as a reserve, and then loan out a multiple of the money they borrow. And of course, if they borrow too much money from the Fed and l make bad loans, again, they go out of business. Where does the Fed get the money? Well, simple. It, it just creates it out of thin air. Now, many people are troubled by that as well. But let's keep in mind two things. One, the Fed isn't just creating the money and tossing it into a crowd of people screaming, free money, free money. It, it, it's lending the money to banks who are lending it out to people and businesses with, you know, theoretically, sound plans for the money. It also gives the government a lever of control over the economy. If the economy sucks, lower the rate. Business plans that once looked unprofitable at 5% interest are now profitable at 4% interest. If the economy is overheating and inflation is a problem, then you raise the rate. People's overheated business ideas suddenly get a bucket of cold water in the face. Money is that never does address the core problem that the economy needs and demands credit. Without adequate credit, people can't start businesses and buy homes. As a solution, money as debt posits some bizarre future where society is living in stasis. We have clean, renewable energy. The natural resources we take out, we put back. Sure, sounds nice, but wait, you know, who's going to build geothermal energy plants? Hmm, private companies. Where is their startup capital going to come from? Loans. How do we know which is a good renewable energy startup to invest in and a bad one? Well, hopefully the bank making the loan does its due diligence. Now, maybe central banking is in need of changes. However, I tend to look at any system as a product of a kind of evolution. Anyone can throw up a flash movie cherry-picking the problems and then propose nebulous solutions. But they don't stop to consider the law of unintended consequences. Look at it like an ecosystem that's suddenly out of balance. You know, too many rabbits in Australia without a natural predator. Ah, the simple solution is introduce a natural predator. Oh wait, suddenly you discover the natural predator prefers indigenous wildlife to rabbits. Not only have you now not eliminated your rabbit problem, but you've eliminated your indigenous wildlife. 
To it, central banking is the product of decades of evolution. As problems emerge in the system, it's tweaked. Consider airlines. Planes crash. When planes crash, they figure out the problem and take steps to avoid the problem in future. The result is today, there are a lot less plane crashes than 30 years ago. Planes will still crash, no doubt about that, but when a plane crashes, no one suggests remaking the foundations of international air travel. Money is Debt also advances the idea of setting up your own private currency, uh, another popular idea spawned by Ron Paul and his followers. The conspiracy types like to grumble the government doesn't want you to do this because I guess people will abandon the greenback when they realize they can switch to money that is backed by gold. The conspiracy types make a big stink about how private currencies are treated as illegal, and jackbooted thugs from the treasury will round up anyone trying to set up their own private currency. Well, no. Uh, first, consider air miles, or Amex points. Notice how you can use those points and air miles to buy real goods and services. Nothing illegal there. And back during the internet boom, I remember lots of people trading shares in Microsoft directly for new homes and such. Now's a good time to live. At the end of the day, there is no law against a barter system, when properly identified as a barter system. And there is no law that people even have to accept greenbacks as payment. You're more than free to turn down a buyer if he proffers dollars for your shotgun and demand gold or bags of salt. People do, however, have to accept it for existing debts. If you want gold or air miles before selling a person a car, you, you need to state that up front. But once the debt has been accrued, the person has to accept dollars. One of the advantages here is this helps eliminate a person who might want to keep you in their thrall by demanding some ridiculous form of payment. In, in the face of this, the Ron Paul types like to point to the arrest of people trying to market something called the Ron Paul dollar or Liberty dollar. Back in November 2007, the feds raided a company marketing gold, silver, and copper coins they claim are infl an inflation-free form of currency. The conspiracy types view this as the fed trying to do an end-around on some upstart alternative to the greenback. However, the arrest warrant was for money laundering and mail fraud. Nothing in there about counterfeiting. In 2007, uh, a couple in Wisconsin were arrested for trying to spend Liberty Dollars. Now, here's the tricky thing. As I noted with air miles, there is nothing against barter or having a paper currency-like marker facilitating a barter exchange. Gift certificates spring to mind. Uh, Ithaca, New York has a local paper money called the Ithaca Hour that's backed by an hour of labor. Many cities and towns have commemorative coins one is able to spend like real currency. All these are left well enough alone by the government. The problem comes in when your barter currency starts to blur the line between barter and what the law defines as, quote, real money, which is just a fancy way of saying whatever the current legal tender is. If you try to pass Liberty Dollars at the local gas station as legal money, and you're not explicit that you're bartering some precious metal for a pack of cools, you may well run afoul of the law. It's not hard to imagine some overzealous Ron Paul types crossing the line. The U.S. Mint's webpage on the Liberty Dollar takes exception to the makers who promote the Liberty Dollar as, quote, currency and, quote, real money. And the Fed is notoriously thin-skinned. Check out on the web the story of, a, of an artist named uh, J.S.G. Boggs. 
Boggs likes to exchange art for goods and services. His art just happens to resemble American currency. He's always very clear he's not offering currency, but art, and the merchant always has the right to refuse Boggs's art. Of course, he would be a fool, as once a transaction is completed, art collectors will fall over each other trying to acquire any art Boggs has managed to trade for goods and services. However, even Boggs has had his run-ins with the Fed and had his art confiscated. Alternative currencies like Liberty Dollar are promoted as inflation-free, although given the prices of gold and silver can rise and fall, I'm not sure how that can be. Well, if gold doubles in price, you have to exchange your $10 Liberty Dollars for $20 Liberty Dollars, so uh, $10 Liberty Dollars now only worth half as much. That sounds like inflation to me. Further, consider a real-world example of an alternative currency. In my nation of Canada, we have Canadian Tire money. Canadian Tire is not only a chain of hardware, automotive, and household goods stores, but Along with Swiss Chalet, hockey, and thinking we're better than Americans, it's practically a state religion. One of the enduring attractions, besides you can buy hockey equipment and a toaster oven while your tires are rotated, is Canadian Tire issues Canadian Tire money with every purchase. It looks like real money, except instead of the Queen, it has a bearded Scotsman on the front. It can be spent as real money at any Canadian Tire store. There's no limit to how much you can spend. You can even pay for 100% of your purchase, tax and all, with only Canadian Tire money. Now, Canadian Tire money has all the hallmarks of real money. You can exchange it for goods like hammers and tea kettles, and also services like an oil change. People also tend to hoard their Canadian Tire money. It comes in very small denominations, like 5 and 10 cents. You need to buy something rather sizable, like an air conditioner, to even get a dollar note. Like I say, people tend to hoard it saving it for some fancy dream purchase like a transistor radio. Of course, by the time you have enough to buy a radio, the new cool thing is a Walkman, so you hoard more. And then by the time you have enough to buy a Walkman, a portable CD player is the cool thing. And then an MP3 player. And then an iPod. And then an iPod in some new bubblegum color. And then an iPod that's smaller and is endorsed by Hello Kitty or whatever. Well, you get the point. So you just go on hoarding Canadian tire money, each time never really spending it, you know, always chasing the dragon. Anyway, back during the 1991 recession in Canada, money was pretty tight. Canadians, well, Canadians are tight with their money even in the best of times. And during a recession, well, forget about it. There aren't enough crowbars in existence to pry open the wallets of Canadians during a recession. Merchants in smaller cities and towns began to realize there was a lot of Canadian tire money stashed away in people's coffee cans and tool sheds. It became popular among many merchants, you know, from coffee shops to bookstores, to accept Canadian tire money in lieu of cash. After all, a coffee shop needs to buy toilet paper and soap, all of which can be purchased at Canadian Tire. Now, here's the point of this rather long story. Most merchants didn't accept Canadian Tire money at face value. There was a natural discount. Most merchants accepted Canadian Tire money at about 90% of face value. So you could buy a coffee for 90 cents. Uh, this was 1991, remember, but before Starbucks inflated our idea of how much a coffee should cost. 
but uh, where was I? Oh yeah, so you could buy you could buy a coffee for ninety cents, or you could pay for it with a dollar in Canadian tire money. Now, why the discount? After all, a real dollar can be exchanged for the same bar of soap as a dollar in Canadian tire money. Well, a few reasons. The major one being flexibility. Let's say Walmart has soap on sale. Walmart probably isn't going to take Canadian tire money. And even if prices are the same, you might have to travel farther to spend the money at a Canadian tire. Also, you don't want to accumulate too much Canadian tire money. At the end of the day, the government won't let you pay your taxes in Canadian tire money. In short, private currencies, unless universally accepted, will always suffer this kind of reduction in purchasing power. And here's another problem with private currencies. The government doesn't want to have to deal in a half dozen private currencies for taxes. It doesn't want to have to keep track of how much a dollar backed by gold, wheat, hot oil massages, whatever is worth. Since in any government system, aside from anarcho-capitalism, we need to have taxes, at least to pay for courts, police, and the army, the government is going to demand one currency for taxes, i.e. legal tender. Since businesses will have to remit taxes in dollars and not liberty dollars, freedom hours, or mescal miles, and they're going to have to remit ahead of time the taxes of their salaried employees, they're probably not going to be too keen on paying employees in the alternative currency of their choosing and then paying their income tax and legal tender. Also, consider the extra costs of exchanging between different currencies. You, you don't actually get $10 of silver at the spot market price for your $10 Liberty coin. The Liberty dollar people sell you your silver at roughly $7 over the price of silver. Europeans have long dealt with this problem, changing between marks, francs, and lira as they cross borders, every time you lose a bit of money in the exchange. Well, this is a big reason Europeans have settled on the euro. It just makes everything so much easier. All right, so I guess that's the end of part one, where uh, we're looking at money as debt. Like I say, uh, next podcast, we're going to turn our attention to money banking and the Federal Reserve, uh, which I has a few little clips from uh, Ron Paul. Uh, so until then, uh, bye for now. 